Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers, aimed to give you the story behind the story. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. Today, Soon Yati will be leading the conversation with best-selling author Christy Lefteri. It is an honor to have both these literary trailblazers featuring on PageCast. Soon Yati is a writer by passion and an investment analyst by profession. Born in Zimbabwe, she enjoyed the world of books throughout her whole childhood. In 2008, Sue came to South Africa to further her studies. Sue has written three novels, The Polygamist, The Gold Diggers, and A Family Affair. She has been long-listed and awarded for many of her titles. Based in Johannesburg, Sue juggles being a mother and an author with ease. Other than her three novels, Sue edited the recently released When Secrets Become Stories, a book in which women from all walks of life, across racial lines, age and income demographics, boldly speak out about abuse. She will be interviewing Christy Lefteri, the author behind the much-loved book The Beekeeper of Aleppo and the recently published Songbirds. Brought up in London, Christy is the child of Greek Cypriot refugees. She completed a degree in English and a master's in creative writing at Brunel University. She taught English to foreign students and then became a secondary school teacher before leaving to pursue a PhD and to write. She is currently a lecturer in creative writing at Brunel University and is studying to become a psychotherapist. Her most recent novel, Songbirds, has been on the highly anticipated list for most readers around the world. For both these authors, research and the real-life experiences are key elements to their writing process. Thank you so much, Christy and Sue, for your time. We are excited to get a glimpse of the story behind your stories. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Yeah, welcome to our audience. Unfortunately, we can't see you. I'm just, I'm going to imagine you there, <laughs> you know, it's with these virtual events, it's, it's, it's a bit different. It's different now. Welcome Christy. And yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation tonight. What can you tell us about yourself that we won't find on Google? Oh, <laughs> that's a good one. Um, what can I tell you that you won't find on Google? Because I mean, normally I would have said something about my family background, but I think you can find that on Google. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really hard question. Can you direct me? <laughs> something we can get to know you better, you know, just, you know, something, you know, you know a bit personal that you want to share with us. Who's Christy, you know? So, yeah, okay. So, I mean, the, the thing that influences me the most when I'm writing is the fact, is, is displacement, migration, because my parents, so the bit that's on Google is the fact that my parents are refugees. Um, but I guess the thing that's, that really kind of gets me thinking is this idea of home and what home means and what identity means and um, how war affects people's minds and how war affects love. And and I think all that 
my interest in those things um, originated from my parents being refugees. I, but I'm not sure if you, if I'd say that you wouldn't find that online, that you could find it online, because I've written articles about transgenerational trauma and how trauma can go from. So um, I don't know what else to say, really, that I've got a dog called Alfie, who- that No, no, it wasn't meant to catch you up. Do you have a yeah, cat? No, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Alfie's here, he's sleeping. So I thought that could be something to add. Um, yeah. <laughs> I asked that because you mentioned there are a lot of cats in your novel, so <laughs> hence I asked that question. I did so, have a cat. I did have a cat. She was twenty-one years old when she died, and so in, in Songbirds, she, I'd so by the time I started writing Songbirds, she had already died, and she was such a huge part of my life. You know, she was such a tiny little thing, and yet she, I just felt she knew so much. So I think that's why there's always that the cats came up in this novel. It's something to do with Jojo no longer being in my life after 21 years. I literally lived with her for 21 years. So yeah, that's probably why. <laughs> <laughs> so tonight we're here to talk about The Songbirds, um, your third book, and it's a beautiful book. It's a remarkable read. Um, Thank you. Heartwarming and heartbreaking at the same time. Um, I know when I was reading it, I was on tenterhooks and you know, towards the end, I had a strong sense of foreboding, but I'm not gonna, reveal any more because I want you know everyone in the audience to go out and buy this brilliant book. It, it's absolutely amazing, Christy. Thank so tell, tell me, I mean, Songbirds, why the title? I have my own ideas, but I just want to hear from you. <laughs> why that title and how did you come up with that title? So um, the reason I took, well, I'll tell you how I came up with the title. So um, first of all, I became interested in the plight of domestic workers, not just in Cyprus, but all over the world. And this came about for, from, two, for, from two things. One was a friendship that I developed with a woman called Manaka, who was staying with a family member. And I met her a few years ago, well, probably like now, about eight, nine years ago. And when I first met her, she had arrived from Sri Lanka uh, eight years before that. And she hadn't seen her daughters for eight years. And she was mothering them through a screen. And at the time I was going through a divorce and she was like two years older than me or three years older than me. And we got on so well, we, we became such good friends. So every year I'd go back to Cyprus and stay with them and me and her would just chat all day. And you know, she would tell me stuff about her life and her daughters and her husband who sadly died in a farming accident. And because I developed such a lovely friendship with Manaka, when finally, um, after I'd finished Beekeeper, a friend of mine sent me an article about domestic workers who'd gone missing in Cyprus and that the police wouldn't search for them, I was just kind of really sad because my first thought was, thank God it's not Manaka. Um, but then I thought, but what about these other women who have gone missing? Like, why is no one searching for them? And mm -hmm. what is going on here? I mean, this is, this is crazy. I actually remember thinking it's crazy. And at the same time, not being shocked because of certain things that I'd realized, you know, certain views in society, especially in Cyprus. I, I know this goes on in other European countries too, um, but I'd seen it with my own eyes in Cyprus. So I was really, really angry that I wasn't as shocked as I should have been. And also really kind of relieved that it wasn't Manaka who had gone missing because she hadn't seen her daughters for eight years. She was there. I knew exactly what she had sacrificed. She was she is one of the most amazing women I've met. I don't think I could have done what she had done. 
I really don't think I could have left my daughters, gone to another country, not seen them for eight years and keep sending money and clothes and stuff in a suitcase for them. How she did that, I don't know. But so, so what happened was I really became interested in what was going on and what was it that caused the police to not search for these women. And so I started to research that aspect of things. While at the same time, I got interested in the journey of migratory birds. So um, there's like uh, these little songbirds in Cyprus called Ambelobulia, which are actually a delicacy. And they, they're tiny, they're, like, they're really about, they're so cute. They jump around on the sand on the beach. They're about this small. And they migrate from Europe to Africa. And on the way to Africa, they stop in Cyprus for a little rest. And there is a huge, this used to be just the old men in the village doing it, but there is now a huge underground organization. It's highly illegal. These are protected species. And what they do is they go and put, it's, it's almost like you know, the amount of money that the professional poachers make would probably be something similar to what um, a cocaine seller, uh, dealer would make. Um, and so they put up these lime sticks in the trees, which is the same as the traditional way of how the old men years ago used to catch these songbirds. But they'd catch five or ten for their family. They wouldn't go and catch 5,000 and indiscriminately where any but so they, they there's this one that sometimes they put up mist nets and calling devices to lure the birds in and sometimes they'll catch three or four thousand birds in one go as they're coming in down from europe they come in to the shore and they land they, they just get caught all of them in the mist nets or on the glue sticks and they sell these and they make so much money so i became interested in the journey of these little tiny birds and the, and the fact that I had an uncle who was doing it, not professionally, he was just doing it for his own pleasure. Um, mm. And But he said to me, it's really sad, even though he still did it, well, he was doing it at some point, but he said, the more they, the more they try and escape, the more stuck they get. And I mm. started to realize as I started the research about the women that were making such huge sacrifices to come to Cyprus, or whatever other country and the debts they had to their agents who were sending them over and, and they were coming either searching for freedom or you know from their families or a better life in some way or in a, a way to support their families. They were coming with hope in their heart that they could do something better in some way and somehow they were getting so trapped in the system that they couldn't then maneuver. So they had such huge debts and, and sometimes they'd have, let's say an abusive, um employer they couldn't leave because they still had the debts to pay off so they were absolutely trapped and i learned this from starting the research talking to women finding their stories both in the uk and in cyprus um and learning what it meant to kind of just be in search of a better life and to get trapped and unfortunately the five women and two children who did go missing um the circumstances behind that which i won't reveal because it's part of the story, it's part of Songbirds itself, is very, it's, it's horrific and it's devastating and very sad. The positive thing is that um, the, 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 the circumstances of these events uh, somehow gave other women the fire to, to find their voice and to speak up, which I also saw and I was absolutely amazed by, which I also tried to kind of, so I think the Songbirds is that, 
idea of the migration of the voice of the birds, the way that they sing, even while they're trapped. And there was something about that that I found so heartbreaking and yet beautiful and hopeful in some way that, and the fact that these women did find their voice and they stood up and they were like, we're not having this. And oh yeah, so there was a trauma that needed something horrific needed to happen, but the women did find their voice. Um, so I think that's where, I know that was a long answer, but that's, that's, that's what inspired me to use the title Songbirds. Songbirds. Yeah, so I mean, on, on page nine, you, you speak about the songbirds migrate from Africa to Europe to escape the winter. Are the songbirds also a metaphor for people migrating the discontent of their own you know, winter, you know, the, you know, the distraughtness. And would you see Cyprus, you know, because the story centered is placed in Cyprus, would you see that as an oasis, like a hope for refugees and people who come there, who migrate there? I think they think it is, but it's not. It's a place where there's a hell of a lot of racism, which has been brushed for years and years and years under the carpet. So I think it looks like an oasis and a place of hope but what the reality and the hundreds of women that I spoke to when I went there to do my research is the reality is what they imagine and what actually they are met with isn't the same thing um, and yes the songbirds are definitely a metaphor for the migration migrate the well in this case the domestic workers but I suppose migration of all sorts you know I was I was asked while I was doing a tour of Beekeeper, I was, I, I was often asked with good intentions, the question, how do we help people understand that refugees are not migrants, that they have no choice? And then that got me thinking, because I thought, well, what's wrong with being a migrant? You know, people move for different reasons. People have different hopes. And what it means, the fact that we're human means that we all have a hope, no matter what situation we're in, we want a better life, you know, whether it's the simple thing of, oh, we've been through a divorce and we, we hope that we'll find a better partner a next time, or we're living somewhere and we hope that we can live somewhere that's, I don't know, that suits us more, or, you know, and that might mean going to a different country, or the, or the hope that migrants often have, where they're, the women, the, many of the women that I spoke to, where there were, you know, there were some young girls, for example, that were, being forced into arranged marriages and they left to come to Cyprus or other European countries because they said I just want to be my own woman you know and this is the only way I found a way to do it I could be independent I thought I could come here make my own money send some money back home if I needed to and be an independent woman and so that's they they saw Cyprus as a place where perhaps that could happen what was that often happening is that they were getting to Cyprus and they were they were in a household with employees that wasn't they weren't letting them go out treating them like children treating them like they shouldn't have a mind of their own treating them like they were second-class citizens and these were the people that weren't abusive so the girls were often saying to me I, I came here because I wanted to be an independent woman and now I feel like a child so yes and this is also with the birds they, they're flying, they, they, they have their instinct that they want to go to a warmer climate, to a better place for them, for that season, and yet they stop over for a rest and they get trapped. And, and that's why I decided to, to use that metaphor. I just thought it, in my mind, the metaphor just fits so, so well. It did, yeah, it did fit brilliantly. Uh, it worked so well because both of them are vulnerable. Yeah. And 
they they are preyed on by predators, you know. Um, so it, it worked perfectly well. Look, I understand migration being an economic migrant myself. Um, and I understand what drives people to move. Um, a lot of people, you know, don't understand, you know, the desperation around movement. I mean, when, you know, when you're in, like, when especially when there's no war, there's always yeah. like, you need to justify it. But there must be yeah. death or yeah. murder for you to want to leave. But people leave for different reasons, even to yeah. get a you know, better standard of living, yeah. freedom, like you say. So there's so many, so many reasons. And why um, can't we just accept that? And I just yeah. find it weird that as as a that we can't just say, oh, okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And why does that not make sense? So why why are we fighting against that when it's I think it's such a human instinct to want a better life for ourselves. Exactly. So yeah, so it was this the, what you're talking about, what you've just said was one of the things that really um compelled me to want to write the novel. Okay, so let me take you back to Cyprus. I mean, you live in London, right? Um, yeah. What What was your motivation for setting the book there? Is it a way of, you know, celebrating your your origins, way of paying homage to your family? I mean, why 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 was it set there? I think it was more a way of opening it up because I think a lot of people see Cyprus as oh it's so beautiful we're going to go there and party and and I don't know have a cocktail on the beach and relax and I don't think they know the real Cyprus so I think my motivation is I know Cyprus so well my dad lives in Cyprus my family lives in Cyprus after my mum died she wanted to be buried in Cyprus you know that was their home and I wanted to show Cyprus that was more the Cyprus I know, which is for me, the real Cyprus and not the Cyprus in the brochures. Okay. Which I think is important. And when I, at one point, one of my aunties said, oh, but that's going to make Cyprus look bad. And I say, things only look as bad as they are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it's not like this is only happening in Cyprus. It happens <laughs> in so many different places, but I know Cyprus and therefore I'm going to write about Cyprus. So that was my reasoning. Okay. There's a lot of food and drink in the book. You have Zivania, Turkish coffee, moussaka, baklava. Yeah. Was this your way of giving us a taste of the culture and the different, you know, um, the, you know, the cosmopolitan aspect in terms of the other, you know, people who live there as well and how that's infused. Yeah, you know, exactly. In everyday life. Yeah, like the Greek, the Greek Cypriots are drinking Turkish coffee. Baklava is a Greek Cypriot and Turkish Cypriots food. Somewhere in the background, so is Moussaka, both Greek and Turkish food. Somewhere in the background is the divide, is another divide between humans, you yes. know, the green line. And also, you talk of it. Yeah. yeah, and also there's the food that Nisha makes and that Yanis learns to make for Nisha. And I think that's when... Um, that's when the world is at its most beautiful, when we can not only accept other people's cultures and traditions, but we can embrace them and appreciate them. Um, so this is why Nisha at one point is having Greek coffee with the uh, Turkish coffee, which is also sometimes called Greek coffee, with the sesame fingers dipped in, which is what my grandma used to give me. But then, the, then Yanis has learned to make the traditional food of her childhood that she loves. Um, which sadly he doesn't get, she doesn't get to eat because of, I won't mention what happens, but yeah, yeah. happens. So I think food was there as a way of saying that it's the most beautiful, I think it's one of the most beautiful ways that cultures 
the different cultures um, kind of there's a, there's a certain appreciation and a lack of anger when it comes to food, which mm -hmm. doesn't always translate into the rest of life, you know. <laughs> so, I, yeah. I, you know, so I think that was that was the thing when I when I was writing about these various foods. I thought, isn't it lovely that we share this lovely little coffee with our Turkish neighbours? And sometimes it's called a Greek coffee, and sometimes it's called a Turkish coffee, and yet there's so much conflict. You know, can't we just all sit down and enjoy a coffee, whether it's cool, you know? Exactly. It's like music. It's almost like music. People can enjoy it yeah. indiscriminately and That's appreciate it. different and cultures. appreciate it as well. This is the thing. That word appreciation, it's the appreciation. It's, you, you know, you that, that is so important, that appreciation, I think, which which sometimes when there's no music and no food, that can disappear and there's conflict and anger and lines, the boundaries and lines. And this is the other thing about the songbirds, that they don't see the borders that we create. Yeah, they just fly. They just fly. <laughs> they, they know their route. They know where they're going. But they're not like, oh, look, there's the green line. Oh, look, there's, yeah. there's like, you know, this part of Africa or that part of, or that part of Europe or that part of America, you know, or there's Mexico. They just, they just fly. They know their routes. So that was another inspiration as well behind the, the title Songbirds. Okay. So just for our audience who don't know, who haven't read the book. So Songbirds is a story about Nisha. She's a domestic worker who has left her hometown, her home country, Sri Lanka, hoping to, you know, earn a living in Cyprus to support her family back home. I mean, it's, it's a, a migrant story that many of you will understand uh, with your own helpers. Um, most of them are migrants. And so the story of, of Nisha, right, we meet Nisha, but she doesn't, the story is told to us through two protagonists, Yanis and Petra. I hope I've said the name right. You have, yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to know, why did you decide these two should tell the story and maybe not, you know, Aliki, you know, I mean, why these two? Uh, maybe not Aliki, oh, that's interesting. Because yeah. I did think about Aliki. To, I, I actually started the novel from Aliki's point of view. And then okay. it just sort of, I don't know what happened actually. And this is the first time someone's asked me why not Aliki because I started it from her point of view and it just sort of disappeared. I don't know what happened. <laughs> I asked you because um, you you always refer to the eyes of a child and the yeah. innocence of children, like in throughout the book, and you hold children in high esteem. So that's why I thought, um, why didn't you then consider her her point there, of view? That's there was a there was a chapter that I wrote from her point of view, but for some reason. And I don't know why this happened. I can't remember, but it sort of got pushed aside. And maybe, maybe in some way, it was wrong, and I can't remember how. Okay. Um, and but there's a there was a very conscious reason as to why I didn't tell the story from Nisha's point of view, and that was number one. I didn't want to speak for these women. You know, okay. um, that was the number one reason. I'm not there. You know, this isn't a book about oh look, I'm going to tell this story from Nisha's perspective and speak for the domestic workers. It was more of a story of, look what it looks like. You know, the fact that she doesn't have a voice highlights the fact that these women didn't have a voice. And oh, that's the, powerful. Yeah, yeah. And this is the thing. And she, she find there is a voice, her voice at the end, but then the audience doesn't, oh God, I can't, it's so bad because I'm really bad at giving spoilers sometimes. But, but <laughs> the, oh no, I'm, okay. Um, so anyway, but her voice does come up at some point and, you, we get like a taster of it, but that's supposed to kind of 
it's, it's meant to go out into the silence of the ending so that we can only imagine. And in, the, in a way, um, you have to piece Nisha together through the stories of others, which is what I had to do when I was doing my research. So I guess in a way, in some way, the stories from my, you know, my perspective in having to learn, having to learn who the women were that went missing, who, what, who were their families, what were they really like as human beings, not just as helpers or workers, but as people who were human, what, what were their pasts and their aspirations. Um, and I guess that it's a story, you know, by the time, oh God, again, it's the spoilers, but it's, it's Nisha already knows the truth about herself and it's others that have to learn and have to understand. Yes. So the story is very much about, you know, someone might say to me, well, in a way, Nisha's, Nisha has been sacrificed for these two white people to learn something yeah. about her. And that's a, one way of looking at it. But then that's also the reality of what happened. Because yeah. when, I, when I went to Cyprus, the people only started to learn when this catastrophe happened. So why does a catastrophe have to happen? Yes, for, for people, people to, to learn? And I think this is something I was constantly saying. Like, there were people I spoke to that were part of the community. They were like, oh, now this has happened. I've understood. And I remember saying to them, but why does it take this for people to understand? Yeah, exactly. you, you know, so I guess that feeling was there in me while I was, while I was writing it. And, you know, I, was, I remember when I was going to Cyprus before and I was, um, I was thinking, um, I remember when I first met Manaka, she, she woke up and she was like, oh, madam, um, I'll make you breakfast. It was the first time I'd ever met her. And I was like, madam, who's madam? And I was like looking behind me. And then I mm -hmm. said, no, 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 don't make me breakfast. I'll make it. And she insisted. She made me breakfast. And I felt really uncomfortable. And then so what I did is I woke up the next day and made her breakfast. And she laughed at me. And she was like, and she said something, and I didn't understand the significance of it until later. She said to me, do you know what, Christy? You can make me as many breakfasts as you want. It's not going to change anything. So she already knew the circumstances that she was in and the fact that yeah. one person coming along doing one little different thing isn't yeah. going to change anything. It has to be deeply rooted in the system of society and understood deeply for changes to happen. And that, I think, I, what I... I, that's what she meant. I know that's what she meant when she said that to me. Oh, that's so yeah. sad. Oh. Okay, <laughs> moving on. So you're very deliberate in the choice of your names. Okay. Um, and the allusions to godliness, right? And I'm thinking of Seraphim, you know, Seraph, yeah. the angel. Yeah, from yeah. Yanis, God is gracious. Yeah. Nisha, goddess of the night. Even yeah. though some of these people do ungodly things. Yeah. Can we talk about that? I mean, why those names, you know? I, this is going to sound a bit unbelievable, but it sort of happened by accident. I don't. Oh, I so yeah. Really? <laughs> was, okay. The only name that I deliberately chose was Petra. Petra. Because there was, because there was something quite impenetrable and stony about her. Um, yeah, no, definitely. And that yes. character lived up to her name. She yeah, really so that was the reason I chose her name. And because I thought Petra is not completely obvious. It's not, you know, the other names came by accident. I just, I liked, there was something about the name Seraphim unconsciously. Of course, I, I had the idea of the angel, but it reminded me of someone that was 
and it was a bit unconscious because it only reminded me as I was writing, but someone who was a bit kind of almost like above themselves, almost like they, they, they're kind of, I don't know, it's like the contrast of the angel or maybe the fallen angel or... Yes, you know, yeah. that's what I yeah. thought. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that devilish, because he had that devilish thing to him. <laughs> exactly, but I didn't think of that. I just chose the name Seraphim because my dad had a friend called Seraphim. And I thought, oh, that's a nice name. That was the initial, that was the initial thought. Um, okay. And then Nisha is because um, Manaka's middle name is Nishanti. Oh, okay. So I okay. chose Nisha. And also mm -hmm. I've got a friend who, <laughs> coincidentally, a friend who's from Sri Lanka here in the UK, and his name is Nishan. And, oh. and so I like the name Nisha. So I was like, okay, I'll just use that. Um, so I think I, it wasn't conscious, but then as I was writing, I thought, well, do you know what? It's interesting the names I've chosen because they're all a bit sort of biblical and uh, or or religious or myth mythological in some way um, and refer in some way to angels or to gods or whatever. So I wondered, I wonder what it was, maybe something about, I don't know, this idea of good and evil and where where our desires or where our ignorance can lead us oh that's wonderful because it worked really well you know thank um, you thank yeah, you yeah even that <laughs> yeah it, they, it just worked well it really speaks to those characters well i mean i'm continuing with this godly theme right um the mouflon ovis um, yeah i thought of a in my mind it's like you know a lamb or a sheep you know with, yeah. with the more of a ram, actually, a ram, not a lamb. <laughs> yeah. A ram. That's yeah. what I sort of, you know, thought of. And I was just thinking of, you know, whenever you think of rams, you think of Abraham in the wilderness. Um, yeah. yeah. When he was about to, slow, you know, sacrifice his son, and then the ram appeared. Yeah. I mean, was was that symbolism as well? I mean, deliberate as well, because we, you know, at some point, the mouflon is a sacrifice, and yeah, and later on, it's. I don't know, maybe I was getting ahead of myself, thinking of reincarnation. I mean, I don't know. Let's just talk about the religious aspect. Yeah, the, these <laughs> things were in my mind. They were floating around, which is probably why I unconsciously chose those names as well. So um, um, I don't know if I deliberately thought of the story of Abraham, but I think it was there somewhere because these are all stories I was hearing growing up. Um, I was really interested. I, I spoke to a monk because I was really interested in this idea of reincarnation, what it really, what it really meant. And you know, Nishan helped me a lot with that as well because it's quite complicated. And in different parts of Buddhism, it means so many different things. So I did mm -hmm. find it quite complicated. But I think what I found fascinating was this idea that um, that there's something that there can be something beyond that somehow links us humans with animals and, and somehow that, I don't know, that it was this idea that was in my head. And I thought, what if in some way, and Yannis, I think I, I haven't made it clear even at the end, whether Yannis is imagining or whether there is something because Nisha, Nisha says to him, what if, what if I, uh, if you were a lion, Yes. So love me, and if you know, if we if we were reincarnated and and were different, uh, were you know into animals, would we still recognize each other and love each other? And and what I learned was that the Buddha said that a husband and wife can meet in another life and love each other as long as they're they have the same honor and the same ethics and the same love for the world and the same mm -hmm. I 
I, way perspective of looking at the world and I and I was really interested in that that Yanis's perspective and the way that he looks at the world is so distorted compared to Nisha's so would they mean um, and so I guess when he sees the Muflon at the beginning I, and I don't really know myself is is there a, was there is it actually a supernatural element can that exist because I'm always in my mind I, somewhere in me, I'm so scientific, and I think there can't be anything. We just live and we die. And then there's another part. Of <laughs> me, right? There's another part of me that thinks, but hold on a minute. I feel like there's something, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a god or or an afterlife or or that we get reincarnated or something. But sometimes I see too many things that cannot be coincidences, and I think that's what I was thinking when I I did the scene with the muflon, and it's it's got the same eyes as Nisha because she understood the world and nature and wildlife and love and sacrifice differently to Yanis. So she exactly. sort of becomes the embodiment of those things. And in a way, it, it's like, I, I kind of wanted to say that in, in life, the mouflon is sacrificed at the end. And, and what's really sacrificed, if the mouflon is a metaphor, and if, if Nisha is also sacrificed, then what are we really sacrificing? For, for the way that we're living? Is it this purer way of looking at life, of understanding nature, of understanding wildlife, or of understanding ourselves? So I feel like something is being sacrificed in order for us to live the way that we're living. You know, it's a, you know the songbirds represent this very kind of uh, corrupt capitalist society in the way that they killed. Let's just kill as many as we can and make as much money as we can. So what are we sacrificing? And Nisha, the Muflon, who Nisha is deeply in her heart is is really representative of the good. I think the goodness in humanity and that how how that somehow is sacrificed along with the earth, wildlife. So I think it was all these things that I was thinking about. I don't know if that was a bit waffly, but no, definitely because you know I I I, I read into that definitely. So okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad. I'm really glad. I yeah. I really read into that. I mean, a lot of the times nowadays you hear people speak it into the universe, right? Um, say it out, put it out there. But you were very specific. You were like, you know, about the earth. It wasn't even about the universe. It was very earthly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I just want to read something from, okay. from your book. Yeah. Okay. A long time ago, I understood that sometimes the earth speaks to you, finds a way to pass on a message. If only you look and listen with the eyes and ears of your childhood self. I thought that was really powerful. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, because I think we lose so much from childhood, some understanding, some connection with animals and the earth. And and that's really Yanis because he, he loved. You know, I, I, I interviewed a poacher. He was a professional poacher. And then after that, he was he was working. He, he, he completely regretted it, and he was working um, as a conservationist. And he told me on the on Zoom, it had to be on Zoom this interview. He told me that when he was a little boy, he loved nature and he loved birds so much that he he picked them up in his hands and he just hold them for hours just to look at their colours, just to appreciate their beauty. And then he'd release them. And I said to him, "How did you get from that to that?" Yeah. And, he said, and he said something like, I just lost who I was. I lost it. It, it somehow, somehow it got broken. It, I broke or something. I can't remember the actual words he used. 
So that's what I, I was thinking about him when I was writing that bit, that maybe as children, we do have a purer connection to, to nature and to earth. And maybe there isn't such thing as God or reincarnation, but there is such thing as the earth and the animals. And it's, it's, it's about appreciating those things around us that are just as important and not less important than us. No, that's 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 so, so true, and I like the way that you know you you show that when we you move between the urban spaces and then and nature and the and the wild, you know, and you know the the two and how we've exploited, you know, yeah, both, you know, um, yeah, to our own detriment. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the domestic workers. You know, um, there was you know very you know powerful threads around them and their exploitation. Yeah. I mean, do you see yourself as an activist in your writing, Christy? I mean, um, even with the poaching. I just, I, do you know, what? I, I, I guess I could say yes. Um, however, because I've always been like this since I was a kid. Like, if I, I would get really, really passionate about things, mm -hmm. and and my mum would always be like you're right about what you're saying, just calm down a bit. <laughs> like, she just thought I was like being a bit too, you know. So I think as I've always been like that, I don't know. I guess I guess I could say I've now, because of the books, had an opportunity to be more of an activist and to make more of, to to allow more conversations to kind of happen because of the situation that the books have brought me into. But I think I've always... I've always had these these things where I get so passionate and so angry, so frustrated about something, and I get so frustrated because I think I can't change something on my own, and one person, and even another person, and even if ten of us join together, everyone has to listen. And then I get I used to even as a child get really like, why aren't people listening? You know. Um, so I think I've always been like that, but I think this book's given me the opportunity to discuss it. To, to meet other people who have similar beliefs or other beliefs that I haven't even thought about. So I think that's, I'm really grateful that my books have given me the opportunity to do that. No, it's, it's wonderful that you can use your, your, your voice and the written word to you know, lobby for things that you're really passionate about. I, yeah. I also do the same with my writing. I think it's, it's another medium that we can yeah. you know, use and because we love writing. <laughs> So yeah, we can express ourselves better that way. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to read um, this quotation. Well, one of uh, the quotes um, between, um, you know, we talked about freedom and how people might, you know, women migrated from Sri Lanka thinking they would be free, you know, yeah. Just yeah. to be free and independent, right? And imagine having all that freedom too. Imagine being able to go out to be free and not to have to answer to anyone. I will be my own woman. And then this is what Petra says, you know. The women here were usually tucked away, wrapped up safely in our domestic routines. It struck me how one person's emancipation sometimes relies on, a servi on servitude of another. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like we spoke, uh, these domestic workers, we said earlier, they don't have any freedom. You know, they co they curtailed in, in this work. Um, you know, their hours, they can only take one or two days off a week, you know, and 
it's just a life of servitude. Yeah. So so when when we look at this relationship between the madam and yeah. the maid, yeah. were you trying to also show how women can oppress other women? A hundred percent, yes. And I saw it so much. And the thing is in Cyprus, they're quite a traditional country in that women were not really allowed to go out, out to work until quite recently. So, and the thing is, I think when you go to Cyprus now, people, especially women, will say, well, look at how much has changed. There's so much more equality. And I'm like, hold on a minute, but you've, you've passed on the, the um, servitude from yourselves onto another woman. How does that mean that anything's changed? So that was, that was what I was constantly seeing and hearing. And I understood how actually, instead of us women should be like, propping us each other up and actually what was happening was that one woman was was be becoming or putting herself into the position of controlling another woman um and then where do you go from there i mean that you know the, the changes that need to happen for something like that to ch actually deeply change because when i was interviewing like my auntie for example who's a really liberal woman and she said, what are you doing? What book are you writing? And I told her about songbirds. She was like, Christy, I'm really surprised, but, but you know, these women don't have any roots or family or anything. And I said to her, come on, do you really think that? And she sort of paused and, and I think she sort of thought about it and said, oh, I don't know. And then I realized that maybe the way of looking became a habit because that was their way, the Cypriot women's way in this Place, but in other European countries too, of finding their own freedom. So they sacrificed another woman in order for themselves to find their own freedom. Freedom, yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, if you think about it, Petra and Nisha are essentially the same, two sides yeah. of one coin, you know, yeah. but they, yeah. they divide it by class and privilege. Exactly. I mean, yeah. the experiences are the same. They've both lost husbands. You know, they've yeah. got daughters who yeah. they've had to yeah. raise, you know, in the absence of those men. Yeah. And yeah. And so the class and the privilege becomes a very divisive, div divisive, you know, factor between them. They could have actually been good friends. Yeah. But yeah, because of this. Yeah. This divide. And, and at some point, Petra, I mean, I, I don't want this to be a spoiler, but she starts to understand what it is that she's lost by not appreciating Nisha. She's mm -hmm. lost a lot more than what she realizes she has lost. I don't yeah. think she quite realizes what the loss means when Nisha disappears. And yeah, so the other thing about the songbirds, it's a, it's, a, it's a book about love. I know we've talked about poaching and exploitation. People might, yeah. <laughs> it might be too heavy. There's love there. There's a lot of love. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> about the different kinds of love. Um, you know, the love between mother and daughter, a man and a woman. You know, and the funny thing, well, not funny, but the sad, the tragic thing is that the, Nisha and Yanis can't have a relationship because, you know, there's this poignant line that you, 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 you're right. Nobody allowed their maids to have sexual or romantic relationships. It was almost unheard of, apart from those maids who ended up marrying their employers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Christy, it's not just in Europe. It's everywhere. This happens everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it is really about the plight of um, domestic workers all around the world and what happens and how they're kind of inf infantilized when they get into certain households. But absolutely, it's a love, essentially, this story is a love story 
between yeah. us and Alicia. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also a love story between Aliki, the girl, the little girl, and Nisha, because Nisha yeah. has brought her up. And yeah. Aliki loves Nisha as if she is her own mother. And, yeah, yet mother she, yeah. and yet she says to her mom, you know, when her mom finds the little uh, lock of hair that Nisha has of her own daughter, Aliki says, that's my, that's my Sri Lankan sister's hair. Yeah. Because she feels so connected. She absolutely adores Nisha. She loves her. And you know what? I saw this with the children in the households. They loved, they loved their nannies because they weren't nannies that were going home or leaving or they were mm -hmm. there. They were bringing them up from birth to exactly. teenagers and they loved them. They, they, they rolled up in their lap. They, when they, uh, fell over and hurt their knee, they ran into the arms of their nanny and not mm -hmm. their mommies. Exactly. exactly, that's so true. They they raised these kids, but yet they yeah. treated like dirt, you know, which is actually ironic. You know, exactly. Think of the relationship exactly. They have. Yeah, so yes, there is a lot of love in the novel and there's a lot of love. So between Nisha Yanis, between Nisha and Maliki, and also the love that Petra has for Nisha that she doesn't realize she has. And, so, uh, and yeah, and also the love for nature, the, the, the deep love that Nisha has for the world and for nature that makes her such a beautiful person. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I keep asking myself, um, Nisha and Yanis, I mean, I keep asking, did she love him? You know, I know he loved her. <laughs> But like I'm a bit, I'm not, I think she did, but I'm not sure. <laughs> or is that, is it supposed to be elusive? You know, because at some yeah. point I'm thinking when she says, I didn't come here to love anyone. I'm thinking, so did she want a situationship? Um, and, but she, her actions showed love. So, I, you know, and she was full of love. Nisha is such a loving character. I mean, yeah. she's so, she exudes love. My feeling so, was when I was writing it was that she loved him. But her priority were her daughters. That's why she was there. So she knew that if she really allowed herself to love him, which is basically what I saw when I was talking to these women where they were like, well, of course I want a relationship, but I can't have one because I'll lose my job. So I kind of used that when I was writing Nisha because I thought, is she's a very strong woman. Is she really going to allow herself to have her head over heels? Not really, because she knows why she's here and she needs to raise her daughters. And she's, she's in a way like, okay, even if she does love him, she's going to hold back. She's going to keep it together because she knows what she can do and what she can't do in a society that's so unfair. But she knows that there's no way she can change it. So she has to remain as strong and as together as she can possibly remain. And so that I think that's what I was, that was what was in my head while I was writing her. Rather than her not loving Yanis, it was more like her logical mind takes over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Not, she wasn't, she was following her head, not her heart. Exactly, yeah. What and made me laugh? <laughs> yeah. So there's a part that made me laugh um, when Yana says, you know, I'll take care of you. <laughs> she says, with what? <laughs> what, what? With snails and mushrooms. You know, it's, it's such a... It's a, yeah, she was also pragmatic in that sense. You know, I just yeah. I love her. And a lot of the women I met really were such strong women. And I was I was looking at them, think, being like, oh my god, I could never do that. I'm completely in awe of this woman or that woman. 
And maybe, and you know, I said that a few times and people were like, no, if you're in that situation, you do it and you get on with it. And you know, and so I think I met a lot of pragmatic women and I think it takes someone with quite a lot of strength to say, do you know what? I want to do something different with my life. I'm going, I'm going to go and do this. I have to do this. Um, and so when I was writing Nisha, I constantly had like this idea of the women I'd met and the strength that they had in my mind. And being feisty, you know, I could. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, okay. So we've done the love. You know, yeah. after the love, there's there's also, you know, a lot of loss in this book. Um, yeah. Loss of fortune, you know, loss of freedom, loss of self, you know, mm -hmm. loss of people, loss of lives. And, you know, reading, you know, this book during a pandemic as well, you know, I, I could, you know, keenly feel that sense of loss. Yeah. Um, why, why, is there, why so much loss? <laughs> you know, there was a lot of, you know, as much as people found themselves, there was a lot of losing as well. You know, I mean. I think I just of, yeah. write, in a way I write what I see. So when, if I, if I go and start my research, I feel a bit like I'm, I'm going to try and be as true as I can to what I see. And if I see a lot of beauty and strength, I will try and represent that. And if I see a lot of loss and sadness, and unfair injustice, then I am gonna try and represent that. So if there's a lot of love and a lot of loss, then I guess what I can say is though there was a lot of those things that I saw when I was when I was when I delved into trying to understand this situation as much as I could. So I, I wish there could be less loss, but there'd have to be less loss in the world. There'd have to be less of justice and less in 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 the things that I see in front of me. Yeah. And I'll close on this quote from, from the book. And she understood for the first time that everything, everything must come to an end. You know, but yeah, <laughs> thank, thank you for for the great chat. Um Sue, honestly, <laughs> absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for putting so much heart into the questions that you asked me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Oh, it was a pleasure. I loved the book. Loved it. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews, so head on over to Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thank you for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast.